This episode of What in the World was produced in collaboration with the Diversity and National Security Network. The Diversity and National Security Network is a coalition of national security and foreign policy practitioners working to diversify the sector. Check them out at diversitynationalsecuritynetwork.com. Hello and welcome to What in the World, the podcast that makes global politics understandable and relevant to your everyday life. I am your host extraordinaire, Bumi Akinasotu. A couple of years ago, I came across a term that sounded very odd, which is quite common in the foreign policy space. The term was called grand strategy. Of course, the explanations from lengthy articles, scholarly articles and videos that I was watching from DC think tanks, it just didn't make sense. And like lots of theoretical concepts, I found it quite useless and frankly irrelevant to our regular life here in America. Like who thinks about liberal internationalism at the grocery store or when you're getting your hair done at the salon? No one, right? But in 2020, I have developed a greater appreciation for grand strategy, this term, through the lens of COVID-19. America's response to this global pandemic has caused me to scratch my head and wonder, is America relevant? Is the most powerful nation in the world still influential when compared to other nations who have dealt with the pandemic a little differently? People are dying. Is America dying too? So here to break it down, here to break down global strategy, great power competition, and talk through its relevancy to our everyday life is my good friend, Ali Wine. Ali Wine is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and Modern War Institute, two prominent think tanks in Washington, D.C. He's also a soon-to-be author. I've read a few articles and he's definitely a writer and expert. He is a expert on U.S.-China relations. How convenient, Ali. Very convenient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he has degrees from MIT and Kennedy School up in Harvard. What I love about Ali is he's kind of like our Steph Curry of great power competition. He writes. <laughs> <laughs> he writes. He thinks about this stuff. He kind of approaches this from the ESPN commentator, right? But in writing. And so he gets to explore all of these world powers from afar and really just assess what they're doing, think about what they're not doing and write about it and give his thoughtful commentary, his thoughtful review and explanation of what is happening in the world. So Ali, welcome to What in the World. Thank you so much for having me. We haven't even started talking yet. You've already helped me realize one of my childhood dreams. So when I was growing up, I never thought that I would be an NBA superstar. I always wanted to be. I never, <laughs> I never thought that I would hear my name and that of Steph Curry in the same sentence. I feel vindicated. You are totally the Steph Curry. I follow you on Twitter where you do all of your sharing of articles and things you've written. And I'm like, this dude knows what he's talking about. It's kind of balling out here with the folks. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I, I love your show. And I think that it's doing something incredibly important. I know we have a lot to cover, but just by way of of giving some introductory thoughts, I think that the idea of a podcast that is discussing the pressing issues of the day, but is trying to make them accessible, digestible, absorbable, 
is incredibly important. And I think that one of the lessons of the 2016 presidential election is that there is a significant gap in the discourse between the, mm-hmm. the way that the foreign policy establishment, for lack of a better term, but the way <laughs> the foreign policy establishment too often discusses America's role in the world and the way in which Americans who are not necessarily steeped in think tank analyses conceptualize America's role in the world. And so it's imperative to have podcasts, outlets, other fora that are trying to bridge this perennial gap between the way in which the establishment discusses America's role in the world and the way in which everyday Americans think about that role. And I think that your podcast is playing a very important role to that end. Oh, thank you, Ali. The reason why I'm so fond of you is you're like the best cheerleader ever. So you talked about your aspirations as a child wanting to be in the NBA. So tell us just a little bit. Obviously, you're not in the NBA. <laughs> you're still the Steph Curry in my book. You're still the Steph Curry in my book. But as a kid, were you like, yeah, I want to be a researcher on U.S.-China relations and study global competition and the global world order? Like, it's- Not at all. And if you would have told me up until my midway through high school that I would end up developing the interests that I now have, I would have been incredulous. And in fact, when I was, I would say that up until 9-11, which happened my junior year of high school, I would say I was quite apolitical. Not only a political, but I also didn't take much of an interest in in world affairs. I I hated reading, and I thankfully <laughs> my sister she was very precocious when it came to reading and writing, and she got me through my humanities classes. But growing up, I was really interested in math. I remember for my I think my sixth or seventh birthday, my parents got me a a graphing calculator to to further cultivate that interest in math. But I think one of the reasons I was somewhat disinterested when it came to of America's role in the world and just world affairs more generally. I mean, I'm very much a product of the 90s. I came of age in the 90s and I came of age during this kind of peak post-Cold War triumphalism. And so in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, I wouldn't want to go so far as to say that the mood in the United States was uniformly exuberant, but it was certainly quite exuberant. And Mm -hmm. in the early 90s, there was a prevalent strand of thinking in the United States or among U.S. observers that now that we had finally defeated the Soviet Union, that democracy and capitalism would be, if not inexorably ascendant, that they would be confidently ascendant, that globalization would continue to march confidently. There was a feeling that advances in technology would empower dissidents, they would disempower authoritarian regimes. And at the time, in the early 1990s, the idea that the United States in just a couple of decades, would be thinking of China as a potential peer competitor, it would have been inconceivable. Mm -hmm. It's a long-winded way of saying that I I felt that I had the luxury to be ignorant. Mm -hmm. In the 1990s, so again, this is the era of the alleged unipolar moment. American preeminence, it seemed uncontestable. It was a decade before 9-11 brought home the dangers of the outside world to to America's borders. And so America seemed geographically secure. It didn't seem proximate to, to significant danger. Its economy was growing steadily. Its preeminence seemed uncontested. And so I, one, I had an interest in math and I didn't like to read. When my parents would exhort me to read and to take an, an interest in events beyond America's borders, I didn't really perceive the necessity. Now, of course, given that we see a world that's far more chaotic, far more disorderly, far more contested, and now that America's relative influence in the world isn't as pronounced as it was in the sort of the heyday of the immediate post-Cold War years, I think that the imperative for Americans to study other countries, other cultures, Mm -hmm. other societies 
which is much more self-evident. But at the time when I was growing up, I didn't feel as much of a necessity. Yeah. So when you originally started and you were saying, you know, growing up in the 90s, my mind immediately went to Little Ali watching like Nick at night. (laughs) You know, as you mentioned, the United States is sort of doing its thing and establishing itself or I guess leveraging the results of the Cold War and sort of going through global engagements as though it were like the Shaq and Kobe of the global world order. It was dominant to your point, but you and I, although I'm a little older than you, so I wasn't necessarily watching Nick at Night. I might have been watching like Martin or something. (laughs) No, I watched Martin. Okay. (laughs) With math, one of my attractions to math, and I perhaps am indulging or indulging somewhat in a kind of a more philosophical conversation, but there was something that I found very appealing about math as a child. There was a precision. There was a solution. There might be different routes to solving a given math problem. Mm-hmm. I was attracted to the idea that if somebody presented you with a math problem, there was a solution. Whereas I think that one of the biggest challenges but also one of the greatest sources of excitement and stimulation in thinking about America's role in the world. And when we think about what is America's role in the world, there are two questions. There is an objective question, which is, what is America currently doing? What is America objectively doing or not doing in the world? So there is a descriptive question, but there's also a highly contested, debatable question about what America should be doing in the Mm. world. When we think about grand strategy, so what is grand strategy? You can think of grand strategy in in sort of basic terms as what policies or plans a given country puts in place to harness the various instruments of power at its disposal. So it's military power, it's economic power, it's diplomatic power. What policies does a country put in place to harness those various assets of power to achieve its national interests? And I would say that most observers would say that our national interests are consistent across time. They're enduring. So. Mm-hmm. We want to advance the security of the American people. We want to enhance the prosperity of the American people. And we want to protect the liberty or the freedom of the American people. And so I would say the most participants in the debate over grand strategy, they tend to agree on what the goals of American grand strategy should be. For the most part is how best do we accomplish those objectives? I would say that one of the biggest differences between proponents of different grand strategies is The extent to which a given scholar or policymaker believes that conditions abroad impinge on conditions at home. And that is to say, to what extent does the United States need to be actively engaged in the world in order to ensure the security, prosperity, and liberty of Americans at home? And Mm -hmm. so if you are more in the so-called restraint camp of grand strategy, you tend to advocate for a less activist conception of foreign policy. You fear that If the United States gets too involved or entangles itself in too many conflicts or makes too many promises to allies, that it may end up entangling itself in conflicts that actually increase risks to its foreign policy, that increase risk to its security, and end up endangering its ability to preserve security, prosperity, and liberty for the American people. On the other side of the ledger, if you are, and I realize now I'm getting a little bit perhaps wonky, but if you are a so-called liberal internationalist or if you are <laughs> a deep engager or a conservative primacist, and th- there are differences in those, but those proponents of those schools of grand strategy tend to favor a more active role, a more active U.S. role in the world. And their thinking is that if the United States largely tends to its own garden, to use sort of George Schultz's metaphor, 
he said that diplomacy is kind of like tending to your garden and it's planting seeds, it's eliminating weeds, it's mm-hmm. nurturing your plants. But if you believe that the United States can't keep out danger by simply tending to its own garden, but then needs to be active in neutralizing threats abroad, then you tend to favor a more expansive conception of, of grand strategies. One of the things I'm wondering, is this concept of grand strategy unique to America? In other words, do other countries use the same phrase as we do in terms of quote-unquote grand strategy? I would say that every, well, I wouldn't presume to say every country, but I think that certainly most countries have debates about grand strategy. I certainly wouldn't say the grand strategy is unique to the United States, but I do think the nature of the debate is different depending on, on a range of factors. But the debate that U.S. policymakers have about grand strategy is likely going to be significantly different from the debate that lawmakers in, say, Germany or Japan right. or, or Canada might have. And the reason is that the United States, for all the talk about America's relative decline, the erosion of its of its global reputation in recent months because of how it's conducted itself in handling the coronavirus pandemic, for all the talk about relative decline, America remains the world's lone superpower. It has the world's largest economy, has an economy worth $22 trillion, which is far and away the largest economy by a margin of over $7 trillion. It is the only country with the capacity to project military power rapidly into the farthest reaches of the world. Its ecosystem of innovation, its system of higher education remain the envy of the rest of the world. And I'm not saying that those are the only important metrics, but according to a number of important metrics, it is still the world's preponderant power. And when you are the world's preponderant power, you invite greater scrutiny. Your actions have a disproportionate effect on the evolution of the international system. And so your debate is going to be different. I think an interesting conversation, and it it ties back to what we were discussing just a few minutes ago, is, and uh, Robert Jervis, who's a very prominent political scientist, he he has warned about this risk, and others have, but I I think in particular of an essay that Robert Jervis wrote in the Washington Quarterly, and I think it was in 2006, but he makes the argument that the greater your power is, the greater a temptation you have to exercise that power to advance your national interest you end up developing new interests. And so ironically enough, even though the United States in theory should be the world's most secure power just by virtue of its power, because it has, I would say particularly since the end of the Cold War, it has advanced its agenda. It's advancing democracy or trying to promote democracy, trying to promote its sort of the American way, developing its network of alliances it now has commitments across the entire world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has commitments across the world in part because it has such preponderant power, which allows it to make one commitment after another. The problem is the more commitments you make and the farther afield you make those commitments, the more points of vulnerability you have. Right. And so there's this paradox that greater power yields a temptation to generate more and more commitments. And the more commitments you have, the more points of insecurity or vulnerability you have. Right. And so this is paradox that does greater power actually generate greater insecurity? And it's quite telling that the United States, despite, again, despite its preponderance, it very often talks about the range of threats that it faces, the range of challenges that it faces. And it indeed faces challenges, whether from 
a resurgent China or from a revanchist Russia or from terrorist organizations. So the United States certainly faces threats. It certainly faces challenges. But would I rather wake up with the challenges at home and abroad that the United States has versus those that China has? I would much rather have America's position. You said something that reminds me of, you know, a high school popularity contest or (laughs) whenever there's a popular person in a classroom or in a group, that popular person really only remains popular by the consensus of other people, right? Other people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. have to say, (laughs) oh, there's little, you know, Kim, not the rapper, but... I came from. But there's Kim, you know, she's in band, she's a cheerleader, she's mm. class president, she's doing all of these things. And really her ability to maintain her popularity rests on the fact that she's voted as class president, that she's mm-hmm. allowed to be in the school band and the captain of the cheerleading squad. And so I would imagine that in a way, it's not just about the United States, or in this case, little Kim, uh, (laughs) it's not just about little Kim exerting her power in multiple things. It's also to a degree, the extent to which everybody allows little Kim to be doing what little Kim does, right? If the world positions itself or allows the United States to make decisions at the UN or NATO or wherever, or to enter Afghanistan, right? The world sort of has to allow, you know, it's kind of also responsible for America's position in the world. They kind of also let it happen, right? Or is that wrong? I really don't think it's possible to overstate the importance of this point that you just made. We can talk about this in the context of US-China strategic competition, The United States, I still think, retains a number of systemic, enduring competitive advantages over China, one of which is an unrivaled network of alliances. If you look at a U.S. foreign policy in the post-war era, so for roughly the past three quarters of a century, one of the most striking aspects of U.S. foreign policy during that period is the relative extent to which U.S. power has gone unchallenged. And again, U.S. power has, the exercise of U.S. power has certainly been contested in many specific instances, but on balance, it's quite remarkable that I would say historically unprecedented accumulation of U.S. power has not invited a cohesive, sustained counterbalancing coalition. Power without consensus is not tenable indefinitely. Power without consensus can be exercised in the short term, but to your point, the United States is particularly as you know, China's power and influence continue to grow as Russia continues to press its influence and its near abroad and even further afield via disinformation operations and its military footprint in the Middle East as technology empowers non-state actors. And on balance, as America's margin of preeminence declines, the more America's margin of preeminence declines, the more imperative it will be for the United States to get that consensus that you talked about. And that means that the United States needs to play an even more active role in mobilizing collective action to deal with transnational challenges rather than just relying on its unilateral power. And and that point, I think, brings us to COVID. Right. Um, Ali, I think I want to translate what you just said, because it's really profound. What I hear you saying in simple terms is, for a while, the United States created the global world order based on its own military might. It You used, I think, the word invited. Mm-hmm. Some others might say force, depending on what part of the world <laughs> you're in. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, it sort of 
presented this idea of democracy, its form of democracy to various parts of the world and said, hey guys, look at us, we're great. Join our multinational institutions like say the World Bank or Mm -hmm. the IMF, which is the International Monetary Fund, the UN, right? There are all of these strategic institutions and places that sort of invited countries to participate in America's way of living, right? Or of moving throughout the world. And also what I think is really important about the point you made, and you use the phrase non-state actors. And I just want to explain that a non-state actor (laughs) is just that, meaning an entity that's not connected to a country, say Russia or North Korea, or it's not the country that is the adversary or the competitor. It is, say, a group of folks, a group of individuals who, for one reason or another, don't like the United States or perceive the United States as a threat. So they operate as an independent entity from the formal established government of that country. And so those folks, those groups become their threats to the United States because the United States for so long has been engaging with countries like governments and not non-state actors or these sort of offshoot groups, which going back to your math, it provides a different way of looking at an issue. It's another part of a formula, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. That's not been accounted for, for so long. And so the United States now, and for probably the better part of the last 30 years, has had to figure out, okay, how do we deal with these quote unquote non-state actors when they're not members of the UN, they're not members of the World Bank, you know, they're not government agencies. These are just people who just don't like us. So I really think that those two are important pieces to sort of tease out so people can kind of understand where we're going when it comes to COVID. And on that point, I, I think that we still have a long way to go, I would say, in the academy but also in policymaking world to incorporate more fully non-state actors into our conceptual models. I think that still when we, too often when we think about diplomacy, foreign policy, grand strategy, going back to what we were discussing at the outset of the conversation, I think that our mental models are beginning to change, but I think that they remain overwhelmingly nation-state centric. And if you think about some of the most influential actors and capable actors in world affairs today, they are non-state actors. And Mm -hmm. Some of them are acting with malign motivations, such as terrorist organizations or criminal cartels or criminal hackers. And some of them are operating for good. If you think about mm-hmm. you know, major philanthropies or mm-hmm. you look at the Gates Foundation, which yeah. plays, for example, a pivotal role in global health. And so we need to think more about what some observers talk about, sort of the evolving geometry of power, the evolving geometry of influence. Going back to what you've been articulating for us, much of the way we operate, America operates, is based on making sure that we are not defeated, and you can't see my air quotes, but they're air quotes, by anyone, and that's most especially China. And we're sort of seeing through COVID that a lot of this competition is playing out in different spaces. It's playing out in how we manage our healthcare system. It's playing out in how we interact with these large organizations like the World Health Organization. 
it's playing out in, as you mentioned, these sort of non-government spaces. And experts have been writing, as you mentioned, since this thing has landed, that the global world order is changing, (laughs) that things are changing for America and that America is on its deathbed and China after this is come out on top and all of these things. Everybody's writing about how COVID is sort of the defining moment in terms of the global world order. What I want to ask you, Ali, is from your perspective and in the context of COVID, where is America dominating and where is it not? Well, like everybody else, I've been thinking about this question a lot lately, and it feels premature Mm. to render definitive verdicts about which countries will have won or which countries will have lost. Having said that, I think if we're just looking at how the pandemic has transpired thus far, I do think that there are certain tentative judgments that we might maybe not render, but there are certain tentative judgments that we might consider. I think the first judgment is I don't think that the United States or China has acquitted itself particularly well. And I'll say a few words about each. So China, I think, has faced a lot of criticism for its initial handling of the epidemic, uh, which is now a pandemic, in terms of its initially suppressing doctors and journalists who were trying to sound the alarm about the coronavirus. And so it it faced a lot of international opprobrium for how it initially handled the epidemic. It also faced criticism for, not universal criticism, but it faced substantial criticism for the the harshness of the measures or the draconian nature of the measures that it it imposed to, to get the the epidemic under control. Which people are actually saying those draconian measures, there's different conversations that it's actually the reason why it didn't spread as rapidly as it did. But I'll let you finish because I, I think right, that that's right. interesting. And I think that there's a very important debate to be had about what would have happened if China had been perhaps more relaxed, if its measures hadn't been as draconian. And now there are debates that are unfolding about the transparency of Chinese data and also some of the, the ways in which Chinese diplomacy is backfiring. Right. Uh, been a lot of analyses in recent days. So that's kind of the unfavorable side of the ledger for China. But on the favorable side, I do think that some of the optics are favorable for China, at least vis-a-vis the United States. I do think that there is a widespread perception that China, once it appreciated the gravity of this crisis, it took decisive action Mm -hmm. within its borders. It was at least able to get the major wave of this epidemic under control it started provisioning global public goods, supplying medical equipment abroad, even though there are now reports about that some of that medical equipment has proven to be defective. But the optics are, and certainly the narrative that China is trying to convey, is that once we realized that this crisis was upon us, we took decisive action, we, and we're now helping the rest of the world to recover. So that's kind of looking at China. I think that from the United States' perspective, I think, sadly, the United States, the optics are, are quite unfavorable, for we did not respond quickly enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, we certainly have not ramped up testing nearly as rapidly as we should have. And I think it's been quite sobering that country that has far and away the world's largest economy, that spends over $700 billion on national defense a year, so quickly came up against the limits of its medical equipment, was so, was so yes. quickly unable to provide uh, personal protective equipment and other urgently needed medical supplies to its frontline responders. And also there's been, there have been significant gaps in coordination and communication between the federal level of government and subnational levels of government. So I think that its domestic response has been wanting and also its international response. In years past, in both Democratic and Republican administrations, the United States has typically played a leading role in convening right. collective action against global health crises 
uh, the United States has not played that role, or certainly not to the same extent it has in the past in dealing with the coronavirus. And so, so my feeling is that both the United States and China, I feel, are losing. To say that they're losing, of course, raises the question, what does it mean to win during a pandemic? Right. My friend Jacob Stokes, who's now with the U.S. Institute for Peace, he wrote an article the other day, and he makes the point very succinctly, and I think very compellingly. He says it's important to remember there are no winners in a pandemic. And as you were speaking, I almost felt bad because on a regular basis, this is not how I think about this. I don't think about a pandemic in terms of winners and losers. And I don't think about the pandemic in terms of who's going to come out on top right? Who, who's going to snag the bag and get the medal for the best healthcare system or the best response? That is not, I think, on a day-to-day basis how most people think. But the fact that this is the way that the foreign policy world is looking at this is really where I think, for me, it's been illuminating, right? It's caused me to, while I'm worried about my mom having a mask, I'm worried about my brother who goes door to door to check on kids who are in abusive homes, right? I worry about that very much so, but it's also quite interesting to me to think about this broader conversation about weight. So how is this country going to come out of this? Are we going to be alive? Going back to the theme, right? Is America dead? Are we going to be relevant? Are we going to be as influential in spaces like the World Health Organization, given how poorly, I would argue, and as you've mentioned, we've responded to this pandemic? The answer is not entirely contingent. There is a substantial amount that the United States could at least do in theory that would help to reverse some of the reputational damage that it's incurred. And there are a number of steps. One, you mentioned the the World Health Organization. And I think there's a good example. I think that the World Health Organization is is certainly a very flawed organization, but I would say that the United States would have a much better chance of reforming it in, in ways that would make it a more constructive actor in global health by staying within the organization rather than, rather than terminating funds. And particularly if we're worried about China's influence over the organization, rather than taking away our own seat at the table, we should be thinking about how we can use our extant leverage in that institution to reform it up. Ambassador Nick Burns, he posted something on Twitter the other day, which I found compelling. He said that in a time of pestilence, in a time of pandemics, terminating your funds to the world or terminating your support to the World Health Organization is almost as if you terminate your funding for the firefighting firefighters during... When there's a fire. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great point. That's a great point. Again, while the federal level response has certainly been wanting, I've been very encouraged by subnational actors. And that is to say, I think that many governors have really risen to the occasion. Many mayors have risen to the occasion. And also what we're seeing is the power of American civic institutions and civic engagement. I never cease to be amazed by the role that, whether it's nurses and doctors, whether it's journalists, or whether it's just citizens who are checking up on their neighbors, individuals who are springing into action to mass produce ventilators or masks. And so at the subnational level, I think that the American response has been in many ways extraordinary. And Mm. so I think as far as how America will look after this is all over, the short answer is, I think we really don't know. I do think that America has lost some of its luster in terms of how it manages crises at home and how it responds to crises abroad. But I don't think that the United States or China has won. I certainly don't think that America is irrelevant. I think that 
the United States has a number of enduring competitive advantages. But again, those competitive advantages don't just nurture themselves. And if the United States makes poor choices, whether it is by trying to scapegoat other countries or defund international institutions, or if there continues to be poor coordination between the federal government and subnational actors, if the United States makes poor choices, then it squanders those advantages. But if the United States acts in a more prudent fashion, and there's no right. reason in theory that it can't, then I think that it can recover some of its reputational, or it can reverse some of the reputational damage that it's incurred. You've answered the question as to whether or not America is dead. I think what I hear you saying is no, it's too early to tell, first of all, right. and that America still is influential on the global stage. But I do want to bring this down to the ground level in terms of how this pandemic has affected the comforts and the livelihoods Mm -hmm. of Asian Americans in this country. And I I first heard about, I think it was in New York, the district attorney sort of creating a hotline about Mm -hmm. offering to Asian Americans, Asians to report discrimination. And it kind of, it kind of took me back to just after 9-11 when our American mm-hmm. Muslim populations were, were severely targeted and harassed and discriminated against. So now here we are. We, we didn't learn our lesson, unfortunately. And the same thing is happening to Asians and those of the Asian diaspora. Could you just share, you signed an article that was released in USA Today that I think speaks to this point about just how connected not just COVID is, but, you know, U.S.'s posturing of this issue, how that can actually impact regular people. Can you just talk about sort of the impetus of that article? And for you, what does it what does it mean to Ali to have signed that piece? Sure. So I feel compelled to begin by saying that hats off to the two real sort of leaders of the effort, uh, Elsa Kanya and, and Chenny Zhang. They were the the leaders of this effort, and I feel honored to have played a small role in helping to draft it and, and to recruit signatories to the letter. But I want to make sure that since they are the, yeah. the two who really spearheaded it, that they get the due credit for having done so. I think that there is there's an intimate connection between what America does at home and its reputation and influence abroad. And I think that that connection has always existed, but it's especially potent in an era of social media and Mm -hmm. in which everything is instantaneously recorded, televised, amplified across the world in in, in real time. And so Elsa initiated a conversation with a few of us and said that since the, the outbreak of this pandemic, that we have seen a surge in hate crimes against members of the the Asian American and Pacific Islander community, members of the Asian diaspora in the United States, and that we need to do something because these hate crimes, they not only are horrific in their own right, but they run counter to America's foundational values. When you think about America's sort of core guiding principles, its soft power, it undermines its reputation in the world when it fails to live up to its guiding values. And immigrants are essential to the American idea. Uh, Diversity is essential to the American idea. And in fact, before just sort of getting to the contents of the letter, when I think about this, again, going back to sort of the competitive lens, but when I think about America versus China, I think that one of the advantages that the United States has is that it is able to integrate 
people from around the world. And I'm a child of immigrants. Um, I, hey, know, hey, me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. My parents are immigrants and I'm a child. My sister and I are, are children of immigrants. And I think that a core part of, of America, not only is a country, but a core part of America as an idea is the notion that so long as you are committed to the American creed, so long as you are willing to play a role in advancing the American experiment or playing a role in the American experiment, that you need not have been born in the United States to play a role. Right. So, so immigrants play an important role. Diversity plays an important role. And of course, the Asian diaspora and the Asian American and Pacific Islander community have been integral to America as an idea, integral to the expansion of American power, so on and so forth. And so I certainly going forward will do whatever I can to not only to amplify that letter that you very generously referenced, but also to ensure that as an Asian American myself, to make sure that I am doing whatever I can personally and professionally to stand with fellow Asian Americans, to make sure that acts of prejudice are spotlighted and denounced, to make sure that in my own work, I try to be as inclusive as possible. And I think that it it behooves each of us, whether or not we're Asian Americans, it behooves all of us to stand against prejudice, not only because it's the right thing to do, but also because as Americans, we only undermine our own values and we only undermine our own reputation in the world when we fail yeah. to, yeah. to speak out. Yeah, and that was definitely mentioned in the article, which I, I appreciate that explicitly says that other people are watching us and yeah. other countries are watching us. And so we can tout that we're the greatest country on the planet, but there are folks who are looking at us like, well, actually, you're out here, you have these individuals, Asian Americans or African Americans or Muslims or women or whoever, you guys are actually kind of trash. <laughs> and so who are you to try to point the finger at Beijing for their human rights abuses when within your own country, you have a little bit of inconsistencies in your own values? On that particular point, I, I think that, and this is, I think, actually, I would say a critical difference is that in the United States, because of the vibrancy of our press, the vibrancy of our civil society, you know, we we are constantly self-scrutinizing. We scrutinize ourselves, we interrogate our mistakes, and certainly we've made very halting and uneven progress towards fulfilling the aspirations of the American creed, but I think that we, we scrutinize ourselves. And I think that unfortunately in China, there is, of course, there are very, very courageous journalists, very courageous human rights activists, but they don't have the same platform when, when calling out human rights abuses that are committed by the Communist Party, they are too often, they're censored, they're suppressed, in many cases, they're detained. And so I think that it's while it is true that you know, the United States is making very halting and uneven progress towards fulfilling its, its aspirational creed, it is making progress. It does have a very vibrant civil society and journalistic sector to to hold it to account and continue to hold it to account. And as it should be, we need individuals to hold us to account. And I'm glad that in the United States, I think that that is one of our enduring advantages. Well, Ali, you have given me hope. That is for sure. Thank you for your very, very, very helpful and poignant guidance through this very complicated concept. I hope that our listeners feel a little bit more comfortable when they go to the next party in person with their friends <laughs> to talk about what they've learned about grand strategy and non-state actors and in you know power competition. I hope that everybody feels a little bit more in tune and aware of just how connected all of these different aspects of our lives, of 
policy and certainly of our engagement with the world, how they all sort of are connected together. And they, in fact, matter as so eloquently demonstrated with the the unfortunate case of the Asian community here in the United States. So Ali, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you are simply a gem. First of all, how can people find you? Sure. Well, uh, well first of all, thank you so much for the, for the kind words and for the invitation. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to, to hearing what your listeners have to say. So folks can connect with me in a number of ways. So just first, my email address, it's uh, my name followed by 55. So aliwine55 at gmail.com. So feel free to shoot me an email. On Twitter, my Twitter handle is at Ali underscore wine. So please uh, connect with me on Twitter. And I'm wine also... is spelled W-Y-N-E. Yes. <laughs> and so you can find me on Twitter. Uh, you can connect with me on uh, LinkedIn. Ali, we like to end this show on a positive note. What is a song right now that's keeping you, while you're social distancing, <laughs> keeping yeah. you grounded and focused and in high spirits? So I've been listening a lot to, and it's it's actually sort of takes me back to my freshman year of college, listening to this song "I Am a Rock" by Simon and Garfunkel. It's a very, huh. it's a very, it's a very fun, very chipper song. It's upbeat. I certainly have been listening to it a lot the past few weeks, ever since I've been teleworking, and <laughs> it's it's fun. Thank you all for tuning in to this episode of What in the World. Gazing from my window to the streets below On a freshly fallen silent shroud of snow I-